In January, a Superior Court judge blocked a settlement that would have let Partners Healthcare acquire three other healthcare providers in eastern Massachusetts. In recent years, dominant health systems such as Partners have become the rule rather than the exception. Hospital markets in more than 80% of U.S. metropolitan areas are highly concentrated, according to federal guidelines. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Barack Richman, a professor at Duke University School of Law. Professor Richman has co-authored a perspective article about the Partners case and the problem with settlements that discourage new and innovative entrants into the healthcare field. Professor Richman, in the case you describe, Partners had reached an agreement with the Massachusetts Attorney General that you refer to as a conduct remedy. Why did the judge argue that this type of settlement wouldn't solve the concerns about high prices throughout a hospital system? In conduct remedies, you have essentially a plea agreement between the prosecutor, or the plaintiff, in this case the state of Massachusetts, and the defendant, the would-be violator of the antitrust laws, and in this case that's partners. Because those sorts of plea agreements have broad policy implications, it's not enough for there to be a deal between the government, the attorney general, and partners. It needs to be approved by a judge. And before a judge approves any sort of plea agreement like this, any conduct remedy, it seeks advice, it seeks guidance from outside groups to determine what the policy implications would be of this deal. And it was quite remarkable what happened when Judge Sanders opened up her courtroom. Lots of different interest groups, lots of different academics, lots of different participants in the healthcare sector expressed real concern about what would happen if partners were able to acquire those three different hospitals, those three additional hospitals, even under the plea agreement. And those concerns express themselves on a number of different ways. One concern was that overall prices would increase, even though there would be some oversight on the part of the Attorney General. There still was a great concern that partners would be able to increase health care prices, both the prices currently charges and also the prices that it would charge through the three additional facilities. There was a significant concern about the ability for other providers to compete in the marketplace. The concern was that if partners were to expand, it would enshrine its market leadership, its dominance, and it would be much harder for other providers to get a foothold in the industry and therefore mount a significant competitive challenge. And insurers were concerned that they would be additionally beholden to the demands of partners and would have a lot of trouble securing reasonable deals for their subscribers. So the short of it is that there were a number of different sources of concerns. And what's remarkable about the way this played out is how vociferous the opposition was. And it's not just Massachusetts. In your article, you write that hospital mergers have become more common throughout the country. What is it about the current healthcare climate that is encouraging these mergers and acquisitions? As you said in the introduction, market concentration or having geographic hospital markets being highly concentrated is in fact the rule and it's no longer the exception. So the real question is, how do we let this happen? How did we allow all of these mergers through the 80s, and especially the 90s and the first decade of this century, how do we allow all of those mergers to move forward? And I think there are two parts to that answer. Number one, there was a general sense that hospitals, especially nonprofit hospitals, were ultimately committed 
to the welfare of their patients, and certainly I don't mean to doubt that, but there was a sense that the commitment to patient welfare would overcome any economic concern. That belief has proven to be false or at least misplaced, and that hospitals, like really any other entity that controls prices, will increase prices if they have market power. The second belief that I think subsequent research has discredited is that the sense that hospital mergers really would not be that economically costly, not just because the patient welfare would overcome all, but also simply because there was a sense that competition and the ability to compete would still be fairly vigorous even after these mergers would happen. That proved to be demonstrably false. Hospital mergers led to significant price increases throughout the nation. And in fact, there is very, very good evidence now to believe that hospital mergers and hospital monopolies are even more costly, more economically costly than just a typical monopoly. They increase prices even more than just a typical monopolist would be. This was a merger wave that happened leading up to the partner settlement. And the partner settlement, and especially the debate that happened in Judge Sanders' courtroom, was informed by these 20 to 30 years of experiences of hospital mergers. And speaking of price increases, you note in your article that mergers have led, in some cases, to increases of 40% in local markets. Why were policymakers so slow to react to this change? Policymakers have indeed been slow to react. I think in part because there was a belief, and this is in a large part the same answer to the question of how do we let this happen. There was an underestimation of how costly these mergers would be. I actually see the flip side of the coin. I see this as partly revealing some good news, that finally policymakers have responded. Yes, they were very slow to respond, but I think we're fortunate that they have responded. And now the Federal Trade Commission, which oversees hospital mergers and hospital acquisitions, and the federal government enforces the antitrust laws in that area, the Federal Trade Commission has been very attentive to the hospitals that are trying to expand. The Department of Justice and Congress has been alerted to this policy problem, and states have been alerted to it as well. And both Attorney General Coakley and Attorney General Healy got the message. They recognized, even though Attorney General Coakley's settlement was probably ineffectively weak, both of them recognized the problems that hospital monopolists now present, both in reducing the quality and in increasing the cost of health care. You might say that the consolidation of the hospital market has been a development that's taken place over the last 30, 40 years, and policymakers have been slow to respond. But we also should appreciate that policymakers now are very attentive to this. And appropriately, there's enormous antitrust concern and competition concern in the hospital markets nationwide. In another perspective article, Edith Ramirez of the Federal Trade Commission wrote about how the FTC decides whether to intervene in a merger, looking on the one side at whether it will lead to anti-competitive consequences, higher prices, and so forth, and on the other, whether it will improve the quality of care. Have there been hospital mergers that were able to do both improvement in quality and reduction in prices? That's a $10,000 question. Commissioner Ramirez is an excellent commissioner, and she's very accurately stating what the law is. The law does not prohibit all mergers that lead to an increase in concentration or decrease in competition. It only disallows mergers that any decrease in competition is not outweighed by quality improvements or efficiencies. So the law 
even if a proposed merger reduces competition and will increase costs, the law still allows the would-be merged hospital to argue that this merger will improve efficiencies, perhaps reduce total costs, and improve quality. But the big question, of course, is whether any mergers have done that. There is really no evidence that merged hospitals have improved quality or reduced costs, very much to the contrary. Now, despite the fact that really every proposed merger has trumpeted all of the improvements in quality that the merger will create, these are, of course, promises that prove to be empty afterwards. So the conversation very much happens along this dimension. The argument that mergers and larger integrated systems will improve quality and might even reduce costs. But there's no evidence that happens. You spoke of two sorts of economic problems. One, the higher prices that we've talked about, and the other, the stifling of innovation. Can you give examples of advances in healthcare models that were the result of new players coming into the market? Thanks for asking the question, because that, I think, really is the underappreciated element in this discussion. There is enormous evidence that consolidated hospital systems have increased costs, and there's very little evidence that they've improved quality. One natural policy response might be, well, we will let you merge if we can keep your prices down. And that is exactly the conduct remedy that Attorney General Coakley had proposed with partners. Our perspective argues that that misses perhaps the biggest cost to a hospital monopoly, to a dominant hospital system, and that is the inability for entrants who, by and large, introduce innovations to get a foothold into the marketplace. And you can think of innovations uh, from either the insurance market or from the provider market. And the problem with hospital monopolists is that they enshrine themselves within the marketplace, they control patient flow, and, and Partners has done this with Blue Cross of Massachusetts, they also have the ability to collude with dominant insurers to make sure that entrants cannot get into the marketplace, either on the payer side or on the provider side. We argue that the greatest need in America's healthcare market, most effective way to improve quality and reduce costs, is to encourage entry and to encourage innovation. We can think of minute clinics. We can think of other innovations to manage population health and disease management through mHealth, mobile health, through alternative providers. We can think of creative insurance companies that creatively manage health of their subscribers, either using new big data techniques or new digital enterprises. We also can think of how creative contracting can disrupt a paradigm, disrupt a monopoly's dominance, perhaps through bringing patients to other locations for certain procedures. One example I often like to cite is that North Carolina's Lowe's Corporation offers its patients to go to the Cleveland Clinic for certain procedures as opposed to staying locally in Charlotte. These are the sorts of innovative strategies. They're either reorganizing the delivery of care or introducing specific modular technologies into health maintenance and disease management that would be very, very difficult to penetrate a market where the dominant insurer and the dominant provider are in lockstep with each other. So final question, 
What types of pro-competitive measures would you like to see from policymakers to move toward those kinds of strategies? If you would ask that question 20 years ago, I would have said vigorous antitrust enforcement is really the best way to go. We have to make sure the local hospital markets stay competitive and we have to stop these big mergers. That ship has sailed. We no longer can rely on antitrust as a really effective mechanism. There already, as you mentioned, are too many local hospital markets that are dominated by monopolies. Antitrust can still play a very significant role. We can prevent the expansion of dominant hospital systems. That's exactly what happened with partners recently. We can also use antitrust measures to make sure that dominant hospitals do not seep their way into ancillary markets. We can use anti-tying claims or other sorts of creative legal claims through the antitrust laws to stem a hospital's dominance or at least prevent its expansion. But at this point, those sorts of policy measures are all second tier or even third tier in their importance. We instead really have to figure out ways to introduce new innovations into the marketplace. And antitrust is not terribly good at that. Antitrust can maintain competitive markets or prevent anti-competitive conduct, but it cannot introduce new ideas. For the most part, I think the new ideas that need to be introduced are ones that would benefit from certain sorts of policies that would encourage innovation. We currently have a very rigid regulatory framework for personnel licensing, the licensing of medical personnel. It makes it very difficult to integrate medical and non-medical services that often have significant health impacts. It makes it difficult to bring in lower-cost personnel to do things that are appropriately for low-cost personnel and not for expensive physicians. I think rethinking our licensure and our scope of practice laws is a very, very pro-competitive, pro-innovation set of policies that we should reconsider. And then there are others. We want to think about encouraging entry into hospital markets. Often we want to encourage the physician as the entrepreneur, but certain anti-kickback rules make that more difficult. We want to think about how we can reduce the stringency of insurance regulation and allow for creative insurance products to enter into the marketplace. I'll point out that most of these policy levers uh, occur at the state level, and states can really be quite creative and quite innovative in bringing in a lot of these new policies. But that really should be our concern right now. Our primary concern should be how can we bring in innovative entrants into the marketplace that can rethink how we deliver care and inject a significant degree of competitiveness into what is now a fairly monopolized market. Thank you, Professor Richmond.